When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everybody. We begin the readout tonight with an academic freedom fight of Texas-sized proportions. In the Lone Star State, a law signed by abortion bounty hunter Governor Greg Abbott limits conversations about race and history in schools. With one school administrator using that law to urge teachers to include opposing viewpoints on on the Holocaust? Make sure that if, if, if you have a book on the Holocaust, that you have one that has opposing, that has other books. How do you oppose the Holocaust? <laughs> Believe me, that's come up. The superintendent of that school district has since apologized, but the Texas law is still on the books, helping to embolden parents who oppose any idea or even conversation on anything that might make white people feel bad. Elevating just one group, white Christian America's feelings over the facts about history, as if Jewish children haven't had to process their feelings about facts like the state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jewish people by the Nazi regime, and as if black children for the entire history of this country haven't had to process their feelings about facts like the kidnapping of millions of Africans throughout the New World who were forced to endure the soul-crushing torture of slavery followed by a century of lynching and Jim Crow if they were even taught about those facts. In our whitewashed, daughters of the Confederacy dictated public education system. But apparently, non-white children are just expected to suck it up. And sorry, Asian American kids, all you get is the Chinese built the railroads in Hiroshima. But they just need to deal with that, right? Just deal with that. Facts, not feelings. But somehow, white kids, according to the American right, just cannot be expected to handle hearing about non-heroic white people in history. Breaks their little spirits. Tennessee also has a law restricting teachings about race, empowering parents to ban books like Ruby Bridges Goes to School, written by one of the first black children to integrate schools in New Orleans. And no, no, the irony is not lost on us how a mob of angry white parents is trying to ban a book that describes an angry mob of white parents. But alas, here we are. In Tennessee, books on the chopping block also include one about Martin Luther King Jr. Too divisive, they say. Even a book about seahorses. Seahorses! Because God forbid we speak of any male carrying the eggs. The party that is supposedly all about the personal freedom to stay unvaxxed, infect others, and die is more than willing to take away the rights of others. In this case, the right of teachers and students to pursue knowledge in any direction they please. It's called critical thinking. Try it out. It's also called academic freedom. And once we take away academic freedom, well, it is a slippery slope from there toward another thing called fascism. Oh, and it doesn't end there. The bedrock of academic freedom, tenure, is now at risk in Georgia, where the public university system will now let college administrators remove a tenured professor with little or no faculty input. All of this, the book banning and both sidesing of genocides and slavery and segregation, the expectation that our schools portray white people only as the master benevolent race. It's being framed as a parental rights issue. But those parents are the pawns. This is an election strategy to whip up the fury 
so that those very parents will elect Republicans. Look no further than the governor's race in Virginia, where Republican Trump-endorsed nominee Glenn Youngkin is beating the anti-CRT drums every day to gin up votes. Joining me now, former Secretary of Education under President Obama, John King Jr., who's running for governor of Maryland. Dean Obadala, host of the Dean Obadala Show on Sirius XM, and who is an MSNBC columnist. And Tom Nichols, contributing writer for The Atlantic and author of Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within Our Modern Democracy. Tom Nichols, I'm glad that you were available today because you talk a lot about how people's sort of sense of whiny entitlement and boredom is sort of creating this sort of mantra of, I need to feel good all the time. My kids need to feel good. It's just going to hurt their little spirits if, you, if they hear about slavery. That's too much, too much, too much, too much, too much, too much. What do you make of the idea that that has gone so far that people are objecting to teaching about the Holocaust? One of the things it should tell you is that um, these are people who think they're on the losing end of a culture war and have completely lost any sense of self-confidence about the things they believe in. Uh, you know, one of the things that um, I think characterized the conservative movement 35, 40 years ago was that it was almost overconfident that there was that kind of sunny optimism that our ideas are just so good that we don't really even have to explain them. They're just they're just that good and they'll win in the marketplace of ideas. Now you have people basically saying um, you have to shut down the marketplace of ideas. You have to destroy the universities. You have to um, implement censorship. Uh, because deep down, and this is always the case, you know, John le Carre said it about fanatics in one of his earlier books, every fanatic harbors a secret doubt. And this is the reaction of a group of people who I think, yes, they're bored. Yes, they want to be entertained. Yes, they feel entitled. But also deep down inside, they're fearing that maybe they're wrong. And that's mm. what really scares them. You know, and it, it, that, that is an interesting explanation, Dean, because it, it is very hard to figure out what is the both sides that you can do on the Holocaust, right? There is like another side. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the Bush administration would put out like Holocaust Remembrance Day, um, you know, messages with not mentioning Jewish people, <laughs> you know what I mean? And sort of sort of did a little both sides weirdness during the administration. But there actually isn't another side. So how do you explain, in your view, what is this about? Uh, this, des this, desi this desire to hold white kids in this little bubble where apparently their parents think that they're not strong enough to handle hearing that white people, you know, were the slave owners. Well, I think the Texas Republicans have created this white Disney world over there for white, fragile people. They do anything they want. Only the base is happy. Look, they, they ban mandates on vaccines and on mass, but they mandate women who are raped. They carry the fetus of the rapist and they mandate people learn both sides of the Holocaust. They're not two sides of the Holocaust. This is a despicable movement. And one thing, Joy, is really important. That conversation you played of the, the sort of the lesson, the, the explanation was because days before a fourth grade teacher had been publicly reprimanded by the school board for daring to have in her library at school a book on anti-racism. She didn't even teach it, but how dare you? Because the white fragility, it's not the kid. You think an 11-year-old kid is fragile? I mean, a kid wants to learn. They go home and talk to their parents, and their parents feel guilty, like, uh-oh, now we're going to have that awkward conversation about our uncle and what he did. That's what's going on here. It's personal fragility of the right white. You know, it, it, just to go through some of the things, John King, uh, just a few of the things. This is starting with two for my for my producers. The number of states that have banned race and gender conscious education. 
Um, Idaho, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Iowa, New Hampshire, Arizona, South Carolina, all banned it. Banned by state boards of education, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and Utah. We have a Texas school district that has now reinstated a book by an author of a book called New Kid. And it literally is just a book about new kids trying to fit in in a school where they were of a different race. They had to go through and look at it to make sure it wasn't doing critical race theory. Houston Chronicle talks about um, uh, because of a challenge, because, do, to, because of his challenger, uh, Governor Abbott, and under his auspices, has removed a web page with a suicide hotline for LGBTQ youth because apparently that's too dangerous to have. Black students suspended in Georgia for planning a protest against the Confederate flag. So you may not protest the Confederate flag. I could just go on and on and on with these examples. As somebody who yourself has a, a history, uh, you know, in terms of education. What do you think the threat is here? Because if if parents are allowed to say, I don't like that Dr. King book because there's no other sides to the civil rights movement, you're not giving the other side of the story, so take that book on Dr. King out. What do you think the threat of that is, or taking away tenure in Georgia? I mean, this is a war on teachers, it's a war on teaching, and ultimately it's a war on truth. And it's very dangerous to the health of our democracy. Look, I'm, I'm talking to you from Silver Spring, Maryland, about 25 miles from where my great-grandfather was enslaved in Gaithersburg, Maryland. That happened. That's real. That's the truth. And so many of our challenges today are tied to that history around slavery and segregation and redlining. We can't wish it away. We can't bury it. And if we do, we risk undermining our ability to improve our society. And that, that sadly, I think, is the hope here, that we sort of freeze our society in the systemic racism that has plagued us since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe the place where John Wilkes Booth hid out was in Maryland. Harriet Tubman, Maryland, that's where she was enslaved. It, you can't escape this. This actually just is the history. You know, and it strikes me Tom, some of it is just purely disingenuous. We had Christopher Rufo on the show um, a couple of months ago, and he pretends to be a scholar in critical race theory, which he is not. Okay, he is not. He is the guy who has a political agenda to try to use this issue to get more people to vote Republican. And he actually admitted that. Which is helpful is that he did this thing at the Claremont Institute, which is one of the agencies that's behind these parents doing this, doing these uh, uprisings in schools. Here he is admitting that he actually really doesn't care about these issues at all. There's these like very uh, kind of pathetic and very, you know, angry graduate students uh, that, that, you know, try to fight me on these highly technical, uh, you know, Hegel interpretations. And it's like, I don't have time for this. I don't give a about this stuff. <laughs> it isn't even real, Tom. No. And, you know, I think one of the things that um, people out there should stop doing is stop taking the bait for a lot of these bad faith uh, disagreements, you know, about do, do you really understand Marxism? Do you really understand communism? What is socialism? These are just um, these are just trigger words. These are meant to constantly trigger a kind of rush of cortisol and anger uh, hormones in people to keep them um, really, you know, part of it is uh, an electoral strategy, but it's also just a huge grift to keep people's eyeballs glued to television sets to say, you must constantly be afraid. And unless you listen to us, unless you watch this broadcast, unless you read this website, they're coming for your children and they're going to turn them into Marxists, whoever, whatever that is. It's yeah, terrible. Yeah. And no one really knows what it means, but it'll, that's what they're going to do. And they're going to turn your children into that. Um, and that's not you. That's just something different from you. 
And and so, you know, it is refreshing when um, folks out there on, in these movements simply say, yeah, we don't really care about any of that stuff. Um, yeah. But they're, they're, it makes them no less dangerous because their Absolutely. whole point is to keep people in a state of rage constantly. And Dean, it has worked in talk radio for generations. That was Rush Limbaugh's game. Keep everybody constantly f- afraid and on edge. It works at Fox News as well. Are you accusing me of doing that on my show, Joy? I can promise you I am not doing that. Maybe a little bit. You know, George Orwell said that in 1984, whoever controls the past controls the future. And that's what we're seeing with the GOP. They're rewriting the past to help them. Everything, Joy, everything the Republicans do, everything is about power. It's about acquiring it or retaining it. So whatever they're doing in rewriting history, uh, creating a white mythology that doesn't exist, so that Rick Santorum's idea that this country was founded by European Christians and people Slaves don't matter. Native Americans don't matter. All of that is for power. The same thing Tom talked about, getting people worked up. It's about power. It is tyranny of the minority. And we're going through difficult times. And Tom, I will say, when I say the GOP is no longer a political movement, it is a fascist movement. I don't say that to get my fellow liberals worked up. I said it as a warning for what we're seeing in this country. We are one step from book burning going on in Texas. Let's be blunt. We're in a dangerous place right now as a nation. Yeah. We absolutely are. And John, I'm going to give you the last word on this, because if you grew up like I grew up, we didn't have our feelings were not taken into account when all we learned about being a black person in America is slavery, that that is your identity almost, is that you're the people that were enslaved. And then they jump forward to, oh, I have a dream. And Dr. King was really nice to white people. And that's it. And for, you know, Asian-American kids, we have Dean Obadala here. There is nothing about Muslims in this country in in education. Asian-Americans get almost nothing. And all these other kids are expected to just deal with that and try to, on their own, when they get to college, figure out the real history of their people. I I think it's actually insulting. (laughs) These these parents are insulting their children, these white parents who think their kids are going to break like glass if they learn history. Your thoughts? Yeah, look, we need all of our kids to appreciate the diverse contributions of, of different folks to our history. I, I I wrote a piece recently that folks can find on johnkingforgovernor.com about my uncle, who is a Tuskegee Airman. He persevered through incredible di- discrimination to become a pilot and serve this country. He put out his flag every day. He was a patriot. He helped us win World War II. And He also realized that there was discrimination in our society and had a critique. And we are big enough as a country and as people to both admire the principles of democracy and equality and also have a critique of the ways we have fallen short. We can do that as a society. Our kids can do that. And that's what should be happening in our social studies classrooms. If we are prepared to be grownups and to love democracy. Uh, Tom Nichols, Dean Obadala, and former Secretary John King Jr. Thank you all very much. Have a great weekend. Up next on The Readout, breaking news. Moments ago, President Biden weighed in on what should happen to those who defied subpoenas of the January 6th committee. Congressman Adam Schiff, who is a member of that committee, joins me next. Plus, why the 2020s are starting to look like the 1920s, with exploited workers dealing with greed, inequality, shortages, and other major challenges. Plus, the growing political power of Latino Americans and the progress that still needs to be made. The Castro brothers, Congressman Joaquin Castro and former Secretary Julian Castro, join me tonight together. The readout continues after this.
Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. On Tuesday, the Select Committee investigating January 6th will hold a vote to refer Steve Bannon for criminal charges of contempt after Bannon refused to comply with their subpoena on yesterday. Just moments ago, President Biden was asked about witnesses like Bannon who have defied the committee, and here's what he said. What's your message to people who defy congressional subpoenas on the January 6th committee? I hope that the committee goes after them and uh, holds them accountable. Should they be prosecuted by the Justice Department? I do, yes. Likewise, the chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, made clear on this show last night that once that criminal referral is submitted to the Justice Department, Attorney General Merrick Garland must do his job and bring charges. We will put this before the United States House of Representatives, ask for a criminal referral. Uh, If we get the votes, the speaker will then transmit that document to Merrick Garland and he has to do his job. If prosecuted and convicted, Bannon can face a fine of up to $100,000 and a one-year sentence in federal prison. It's another sign that by the standards of most congressional investigations, this committee is indeed working at breakneck speed. Over the last month, they've issued subpoenas for documents and testimony from 19 individuals. That's in addition to the numerous witnesses who are providing information voluntarily. Yesterday, Congressman Adam Schiff did not rule out subpoenas for higher-profile witnesses like Mike Pence and even Donald Trump. Joining me now, Congressman Adam Schiff of California, a member of the Select Committee on the January 6th attack and the author of the best-selling new book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Um, Congressman, thank you for being here. Congratulations on the success of the book. Um, And uh, let's get right to that last point. In your view, if the Justice Department does not fully hold accountable Steve Bannon to show up and, and, and honor these subpoenas, would you agree with me that there would be no hope of ever being able to obtain testimony from people like um, Senate, I mean, House Minority Leader McCarthy. Well, it's very hard to see how we can get timely information uh, to protect the country if we can't enforce our own subpoenas. Uh, So I do view this as an early test of whether our democracy is recovering, uh, a test of the principle that no one is above the law, that the law applies equally to everyone. Uh, And I was very encouraged to hear what President Biden said today, uh, that he thinks our committee should go after those who don't comply, and he believes that they should be prosecuted. And I'm also very, very impressed that the Biden White House is not asserting privilege uh, to prevent us from interviewing top Justice Department officials, not asserting privilege to prevent us from getting the records we need to help inform the public. Uh, Another sign, I think, that the Biden administration really is committed to restoring our democracy and the principle of the rule of law. Uh, You know, 
uh, Larry Tribe, Lawrence Tribe, Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard University, constitutional law scholar, he is. He and others have expressed some concern. I expressed some concern on this program that Merrick Garland, um, our Attorney General, may not have may not have the small C constitution, you know, the, the fortitude, or maybe too nervous about the broader implications of going after the former president of the United States for any role he may have played in the insurrection, and even on down to his supporters. Do you have those concerns? Oh, look, I, I think on the natural, although I don't know uh, the attorney general personally, uh, I think that he is a very forward-looking person. And and while I admire that, um, we cannot ignore what's taken place in the past. Um, we cannot ignore, for example, that the former president of the United States, among many other acts, was on the phone with the secretary of state of Georgia, urging that secretary of state to find 11,780 votes that don't exist. I think practically anyone else who did that would be under indictment already. Uh, now, there may come a time where you make a decision, is it in the best interest of the country to prosecute? Um, but you still have to do the investigation before you can even ask that question. Uh, and it does concern me that I don't see any signs of some of the wrongdoing of the former president even being investigated. Uh, but I am you know, very encouraged uh, on, on the most immediate need of our committee that the Justice Department, Merrick Garland's Justice Department, uh, is allowing us access to very top-level people uh, and not standing in the way. Uh, and I think that's enormously important. Uh, let me read a little bit from your book. I'm going to read you to you uh, for just a moment. Um, and, and this is what you write in Midnight in Washington. You write, our system of government depends on two functioning parties. And now we had only one. The GOP had become an anti-truth, undemocratic cult organized around the former president. For a brief moment, when emotions around the insurrection were high and public sentiment against Trump was powerful and deep, McCarthy, Mitch, uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell had flirted with casting him aside. But like a candle in the breeze, their flirtation with truth quickly flickered and died. And when that small light was extinguished, prospects for a swift recovery from the damage inflicted by the most grandiose of liars died along with it. We had Tom Nichols on uh, earlier uh, in the previous segment, and he, he's talked about this party as sort of late-stage Bolshevism. And what that involves is sort of functionaries within the government who have power, but who choose instead to commingle, um, you know, with the autocrat, to give in, to, to go along, to, you know, to co-conspire. Are you concerned that the Republican Party is so far gone that there really is almost no one left who is willing to stand up to those fascistic uh, autocratic impulses of the former president? Uh, you know, there are people who are showing great courage and standing up, uh, defending the truth, defending uh, our elections. Uh, I think Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger among them. Uh, and those are very important uh, voices within the Republican Party. Um, but you do see this this dangerous more than flirtation with authoritarianism now among top leadership, of the Republican Party. Uh, you see it in the, the celebration of wannabe dictators like Viktor Orban in Hungary, the scheduling of conservative conventions in Budapest, the, you know, the celebration of that as a model they believe America should follow. Um, and most pernicious, these efforts at home uh, to strip independent elections officials of their jobs and their responsibilities and give them over to partisan boards and legislatures. Uh, this is how democracies die when the instruments of democracy are used uh, against democracy itself. There may be another attack on the Capitol. The president is pushing out, former president, the same big lie that led to the first attack. But I, I, I'm confident if there is another bloody attack on the Capitol, it will fail like the last one. 
But what may succeed, Joy, are these efforts around the country, this insurrection by people in suits and ties. If uh, the elections next year go as history suggests and Kevin McCarthy winds up with the speaker's gavel, in your view, what would be the consequences of that? Well, look, if Kevin McCarthy had been speaker during the last presidential election, they would have decertified the results. Um, and we would be in a, in a state of constitutional crisis. Um, someone like that, unwilling to uphold their oath, um, unwilling to, to uh, fulfill their constitutional duty, can never be allowed to have that kind of position of responsibility. Uh, moreover, if Kevin McCarthy is speaker, then functionally, Donald Trump is speaker because McCarthy will not stand up to him no matter how unethical the demand. Uh, and this is why, uh, as long as the GOP and its leadership are a, a cult, uh, an autocratic cult around the former president, there's no, there's no accommodating that. Uh, they just need to be beaten at the polls. I, I cannot say I disagree with you, sir. <laughs> Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, <laughs> I thank you uh, for all that you've done to try to defend this democracy. Um, I can just give you an amen on this Friday. Thank you very much. I appreciate what you do. Thank you, sir. Uh, and best of luck with the book coming up on the readout. It is starting to feel like we may have gone back to the roaring 20s. Between today's worker strikes, wealth disparities, and postal deliveries slower than a horse and buggy. We'll be right back. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Okay, do you guys remember reading Aldous Huxley in high school? He wrote these searing novels about the era when the Roaring Twenties meant riches and a surge toward capitalism for the rich with a hidden underbelly of inequality and horrible working conditions for the poor. A dystopia dressed up as utopia, as the New York Times described Huxley's brave new world. The right loves the 1920s. I mean, think about it. This was, about, this was the era of exclusionary immigration policies to the point that the New York Times declared in 1924 that the, um, the America of the melting pot has come to an end. There were historic labor strikes after World War I, but the 20s were very anti-union because of sentiment that unions were communist. Sound familiar? The rich got richer, partially thanks to the huge tax cuts, and many Americans got much, much poorer. It's not so different today with COVID only exacerbating our issues with inequality. We're seeing workers throughout the country unionizing and going on strike to make their voices heard. They're fed up with bad working conditions and jobs that don't pay enough for them to afford childcare, with a record 4.3 million people quitting their jobs in August. That's led to a shortage of truck drivers, which has contributed to a huge supply chain problem, 
raising prices and delaying shipment of goods. And on top of all that, there's a postal service slowdown that could also delay your packages, thanks to Trump appointee Louis DeJoy, who still has financial ties to his former company that had stakes in post office competitors and now has a huge contract with the post office itself. Of course, the right wants to blame all of this upheaval on Joe Biden and on the pandemic stimulus, which actually significantly decreased poverty in the United States. But as Michael Tomaski wrote, talking heads who blame government handouts for the labor shortage are missing the point. People are sick of crap jobs and crap wages. I'm joined now by the author of that piece, Michael Tomaski, editor of The New Republic, along with Dr. Julianne Malvo, economist, author, and dean of the College of Ethnic Studies at Cal State Los Angeles. Thank you both for being here. And Michael, long time no see. Great to talk to both of you. Um, let's start with some, thank you, with some breaking news. Speaking of jobs that um, that are that are that are that are in many ways just killer. Uh, the coal industry is, is a tough industry. Um, a lot of people, it's it's in some ways, you know, one of the few ways that you can make like a really decent living um, in some states like West Virginia. Um, but it also is is detrimental to the health. There's black lung disease. There are all of these issues that have to do with the health of the people doing the job. This is some breaking news that just happened very recently. It, it appears that because of Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He has told the White House that he strongly opposes the clean electricity program that's in the this sort of super um, infrastructure bill, according to three people. As a result, White House staffers are now rewriting the legislation without that climate provision and are trying to cobble together a mix of other policies that could also cut emissions. So this big bill that they're trying to negotiate down from three point five trillion on down is now going to have nothing, nothing, nothing to slow down coal. And I just am curious to get your thoughts. <clears throat> Well, uh, I'm not happy about it. Um, <clears throat> you know, Joy, I'm from West Virginia and uh, I grew up there. I, I know a lot about the politics, a good amount about the politics and the economics of that state. There aren't nearly as many coal miners as there were when I was a kid. When I was a kid, there were about 150,000 coal miners in the state, 120,000 unionized, good jobs. Uh, now, I think there are about 10,000. Mining, by the way, the same amount of coal because of automation and technology in these massive machines they have that cut the tops off of mountains. Uh, so it doesn't really affect as many jobs anymore. And by the way, newsflash, this did not start under Barack Obama. This actually started in the 1980s, and it was really driven by technological changes. It wasn't Ronald Reagan's fault either. It's driven by technology. And now it's driven by the search for sources of energy other than fossil fuels. So it's a long-term thing. Uh, and we do need to move away from fossil fuels. I think even most people in the state of West Virginia, if you got them in an honest moment, recognize that. But it's very easy for politicians to say this is a great threat to our way of life and mm -hmm. so on. And many people do feel that emotionally. And, and, and steps do have to be taken uh, to help the workers who are displaced by this. 10,000 is still 10,000. And there are associated jobs uh, that go along with that. So, it, you know, it, things have to be done for those workers and for the communities of Southern West Virginia, which are in horrible, horrible shape. There, I want to be the first to say that. But a change does have to come. And Joe Manchin is going to have to reckon with that one of these days. But apparently he doesn't want to. Uh, Dr. Malvo, thank you. Uh, great to see you as well. And, you know, what I th what strikes me about this era is that we do seem to be going back to I've, I've often said that people claim the right wants to take America back to the 50s, but it's really the 20s that they want. And, and I've had people, you know, conservatives say it, that, they, that it was the, the golden era. 
because, you know, you're talking about no income taxes, none or none or very little. You're talking about even child labor being legal, which some of them have said maybe we should bring back. Um, you're talking about workers having almost no rights, union rights being minimal, immigration being cut off from any non-white countries. It's sort of ideal. And it feels like workers right now are in a similar struggle. They're calling this striketober. So many people are on strike because they're fed up with low wages, poor working conditions, et cetera. Your thoughts? Well, Michael's point in his piece is spot on. Crap jobs at crap wages. Nobody wants that. But what happened is that COVID essentially allowed people to reassess their lives. You have people who would rather have a, a lower paying job with benefits the contract job that pays very well, but has no benefits and they have to cobble up their health care themselves. Um, this notion of a labor shortage is basically, for want of a better word, bass backwards. Um, in other words, if you pay people more, they'll work. It's very, very simple. You can't say we have a labor shortage. Of course, you have a labor shortage where you're paying people even 15 an hour. 15 an hour is $30,000 a year. Uh, that is just at the poverty line for a family of four. It's about 27000 for a family of four. So you're just right there. Um, and you have very little wiggle room. Moms have rethought, you know, 4 million people left the labor market last month. Moms were, were more than half of them. Women were more than half of them. Why would women stay home? No child care. Delta variant. You, the, the, the list is as long as my arm. I mean, there's so many reasons that people will stay home. We have not paid attention to workers in a very long time. We haven't paid attention to something I used to write about in the 80s, family-friendly policies for workers. Um, only 3% of employers have any kind of child care provisions on site. So you're a nurse. Your child has some sniffles. You don't want to send her to school. What do you do? Either you don't go to work or you know, if you're if your hospital very rarely has a emergency child care, you take them there. But most places just don't. We are treating people like they're donkeys. I mean, we're expecting people to work until they drop. And a lot of people are saying, oh, no, I'm not going there. And it's not that they have the unemployment benefit. Of course, that did help a little while, but that was three hundred dollars and it's now gone. Mm -hmm. It's not because it's, it's because people have had it. People have basically had it with the terms and conditions of work. In some cases, people are striking. If you look at the uh, Hollywood strike, they're not, they want more money, of course. But some of these people say they work 12 hour days and without a meal yeah. break. Yeah. That's absurd. That's, in, that's inhumane. Nurses, same thing. They're saying we want longer breaks. Yeah, they want more money. The Kaiser strike out in California, they're asking for 4% increase, but they're asking for longer breaks. And that's not an unreasonable thing when you look at what's been happening with overcrowding in our hospitals. But these little penny-pinching, micromanaging, predatory capitalists will want to extract all the extra value out of people's work, and people have just had enough of it. Yeah. We, uh, we, we need to have a longer conversation about this. So we're going to invite you both back. Michael Tomaski, Dr. Julian Malvo, thank you very much. We're going to invite you guys back to have a longer conversation about this very important issue. Okay. Joaquin Castro and Julian Castro, two of America's most prominent Latino public figures. Join me next on the growing political power of Latinos and what can be done to address the underrepresentation of Latinos in the media and elsewhere. Stay with us. Okay, I want to tell you a quintessential American story about two brothers from San Antonio, Texas. 
They grew up on the west side in a predominantly Mexican-American area. Their Texan roots trace back to the 1920s when their grandmother, then six years old, emigrated from Mexico. Their mother, Rosie, a Chicana political activist, instilled civic engagement when she brought them as kids to events. They rode the bus to public school because the family didn't have a car. They finished high school in three years and headed to Stanford, relying on scholarships, grants, and loans. That is the story of Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro, who now represents Western San Antonio, and Julian Castro, a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate and former HUD secretary. It's a made-for-television story. But here's the thing. Not enough of those stories about Hispanic Americans are being told. Stories of people like Dolores Huerta, the American labor leader and human rights activist, or Julia Alvarez, the critically acclaimed author, or Dr. Ellen Ochoa, the, former, the first Hispanic woman to go to space, all remain mostly unknown to the majority of Americans. Latinos make up 18% of the U.S. population, but according to a new government report, they receive only about 5% of all speaking parts that appear on screen. They receive even less political representation, holding just 1% of local and federal elected offices. In order to bring some light to the disparity, the White House, partnering with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, hosted a series of discussions yesterday to highlight Latino contributions across the nation's media ecosystem. And with me now is Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas. He was at the White House yesterday. And former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro, host of the Our America podcast. Thank you both for being here. Uh, and I, I, I know I have the secret to telling you guys apart. I know what it is. So I'm going to go to Joaquin first with the beard. Ah, see, Julian well, told on you I because he last time he was here. Yeah, Julian told him told me how to do it. So now I figured it out. Um, tell me about tell me about this meeting at the White House. And, and what do you think needs to change in the way that the media represents people who share your heritage? Well, first, I'm glad that President Biden, Vice President Harris and the White House made the effort to put on this forum, which is, I think, for them going to be the first in a series of discussions about representation. This was about the Latino community during Hispanic Heritage Month and the absence, really, and exclusion of Latinos from many media platforms. Uh, you think, for example, about Hollywood and the fact that it's still in American society, the major, main image defining and narrative creating institution that we have and yet Latinos only get three or 4% of the roles in front of and behind the camera. And the Latino narrative is really missing in American society. And that's a very deep problem, uh, not, because it represent, not only because it represents cultural exclusion, but also because I think it's very dangerous when a community is unknown and defined by stereotypes and by malicious politicians who would abuse those stereotypes for their own political gain. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, you know, Julian Castro, the previous president, literally opened his presidential run saying that Mexico isn't sending its best, it's sending rapists and criminals here. And that actually helped him do better because it's so easy to demonize Latinos as a way of getting, uh, unfortunately, votes from some conservative white voters. Can you talk a little bit about the way that politics is playing out in a place like Texas that has 39 percent um, you know, Latino population, but where the new gerrymandering, let me get it right here, is only giving um, Latinos 20 percent of the districts. So you're already seeing this push to take away even more power in, in your home state. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, Donald Trump certainly, you know, lit the flame, exacerbated these stereotypes and uh, ill will toward the Latino community. Uh, but it's clear people have taken the baton now and are taking it to a new level and putting it into law and practice. 
That includes Greg Abbott here in Texas, as well as the Republican leaders of the Texas legislature uh, through their gerrymandering, through their voter suppression legislation, through their attack on critical race theory, not wanting people to learn about everyone from uh, Cesar Chavez to Dolores Huerta to Martin Luther King. Uh, And so they're trying to create uh, this society where black and brown families have less of an opportunity to succeed. Uh, And that's on top of the challenges they already face that you pointed out, a couple of them, Joy. So uh, the irony is that Texas really represents what the America of tomorrow looks like, but the leadership is trying to take it in the completely opposite direction and play to a smaller and smaller, mostly white base of of Texans uh, and just juice that out as long as they can to hold out to power even though you have a changing state. Uh, It's amazing uh, and also uh, frustrating and dangerous. Well, in a changing state, in a changing America, I mean, Joaquin Castro, I mean, look at the, you know, there was just a sort of redo of Cinderella with a a Latina, you know, as the star. Like the, the marketplace understands where this country is going. The rising majority is black and brown and Asian American. And, and, and it's a huge opportunity, I think, for media, for, you know, news media, for everything to sort of look at this new young demographic and say, hey, let's do something different. Do, can, can, what do you, why do you think that people are not doing that more aggressively, given how big this market is? Uh, you know, it's hard to say, Joy. I mean, it, it's really surprising because Latinos, for example, uh, over-index when it comes to buying movie tickets, right? Pre-pandemic, they bought 25% of the movie tickets, even though we only make up about 18% of the population. We over-index on streaming, on Netflix, on Amazon, on Hulu. So it's weird because usually when when somebody doesn't try to sell you a product or doesn't include you in what they're doing, it's because they argue that you're not their market. Right. But here, the weird thing is you're already a fundamental part of their market. And in some ways you're over indexing. So you're carrying them. And still the institution itself uh, tries to tries to exclude you. And and that's why. uh, And that's true across different platforms in media, Hollywood, but also in hard news and journalism. In fact, you probably saw today that only like 200 and maybe 90 or so of these different newspaper, and I I don't know if it was just newspapers, I think so, organizations submitted back uh, diversity information in a major study on this issue. And so there's still a lot of reluctance, and the media's got to decide that it's going to be more inclusive and that it's going to change. Absolutely. I'll just Um, say, Joy. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, you know, the stakes for this are as high as they can be because the census reminded us that already about a fifth of our population in this country is Latinx, uh, that more than a quarter of the children in America are Latinos or Latinas. So the destiny of our country is intertwined with the destiny of Latinos like never before. We're going to yeah. do as well in this country as this community does. And like, do you think the Democratic Party, fully understand? I'm going to stay with you for a moment, Julian, because you made a lot of people uncomfortable when you went real hard during your presidential run and said, this whole <laughs> Iowa, New Hampshire thing, that's not it. That we need to change and we need to start looking at the more diverse states and making them earlier. Does the Democratic Party fundamentally understand, you know, what they need to do in order to make these changes? You know, I've been pleased with the news of late uh, that it's I believe it's likely that Iowa is no longer going to go first. Iowa is a wonderful place. New Hampshire is a wonderful place. 
you know, we were treated very well in both of those states, but they simply don't reflect the diverse America that we have today, or certainly the diversity within the Democratic Party. And so it needs to change. Yeah. Uh, I think that Jamie Harrison and the DNC leadership recognizes that. I think they're putting a, a process in place to make sure that whatever the primary calendar does look like actually reflects the party in the country. And that's actually, uh, you know, easier said than done, because once you say it's up for grabs, every state out there yeah. wants to be the first one to get it. Yep. But they have put that process in place. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to hold you guys because look, the Casper brothers, you guys are going to stick around because up next, we're going to have you guys play who won the week and we're going to let you guess who's going to be, give you a more fun who won the week. So we'll see. Don't miss it. (laughs) All right. Congratulations. We made it to Friday once again, folks. So now it is time to play our favorite game. Who won the week? Back with me, our Congressman Joaquin Castro and former HUD Secretary Julian Castro, our first twin who won the week. It's never happened before on this show or on any show. So I'm going to go first to Julian because he ran for president, so he gets to go first. Sorry, Joaquin. Julian Castro, who won the week? <laughs> well, and Joy, also, I'm the firstborn. So, you know, oh, I well, always got to get the first word. You, you always know? gone first. Hey, there you go. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the, the 10,000 John Deere workers that uh, are on strike right now, uh, who are standing up for fair wages, fair benefits, who have been working their hearts out, uh, like so many other employees, so many other workers during this pandemic and for many years. And at the same time that John Deere is getting record profits and paying huge bonuses to their executives, they're shortchanging these workers. They won the week for standing up, not only for themselves, but for workers throughout this country that deserve a raise and deserve to be treated with respect. Amen. Amen. I like that one. Okay. All right. Well, Joaquin Castro, I am also a younger sibling, so I feel your pain, first of all. <laughs> well, then, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and now I will give you the opportunity, uh, my fellow younger sibling, to tell us who won the week. Well, I'm going more lighthearted here, and I'm saying it's Alex Padilla for that tortilla roll while he was eating his taco in California. (laughs) Uh, This is a man who won the hearts of every Mexican-American grandmother and grandfather in California. He's up for re-election. He obviously knows what he's doing. That was incredible. But but Joy, let me tell you, don't let those Californians fool you. Tex-Mex food is way better than Mexican food in California. So you just started a fight there. That is not a lie. That is real. Listen, I came from Colorado, so I know me some really great, you know, Mexican food. But Texas, the food is amazing, amazing, amazing. Congressman Joaquin Castro, former Secretary Julian Castro, thank you for playing. We really appreciate you guys. Happy Hispanic Heritage Month. Thank you for joining us. This is awesome. And by the way, Congressman... Congressman Castro will be joining Tiffany Cross tomorrow morning for her special, The Cross Connection, The Latino Landscape. Tiffany is live in Miami and will explore the battle for voting rights, immigration policy, the Afro-Latino experience, and the lack of Latino representation in the media and in entertainment. You can watch Tiffany's special tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. right here on MSNBC. You're going to love it. That is tonight's readout, everybody. Have a great weekend. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.